great Sunday so far, and uh, in light of the occasion, it, uh, I decided to take a break from the Gospel of John for this uh, Sunday alone and uh, take a look at the whole subject of goodness, and certainly we understand goodness and uh, what has been happening and taking place in our assembly here, and so it's kind of an appropriate time. You know, goodness is uh, one of the fruit of the Spirit that's mentioned in Galatians uh, chapter 5. It's the uh, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Nine of them. And uh, uh, nine characteristics in goodness happens to be a part of it. Um, you know, uh, if we were to all just sit down for a minute and write out a definition of goodness. Uh, we would probably have uh, 50 different definitions of what goodness is. And uh, but in, just in our own little assembly here. And every one of them would be right. So goodness is hard to define, but we understand it when we see it. And just like that little poem, or a little parable, I should say, on the subject of goodness, so the Good Samaritan that is there, in light of uh, all that's going on in our own church, we can, uh, in the midst of all, whatever chaos we happen to encounter, we can all thank God for his goodness to our church. I want to make a couple of observations about this parable here. Uh, in my particular translation, and uh, even in the Greek, it refers to the, to the term lawyer. It was uh, the lawyer who came and asked Jesus. Now, if you look at the Bible itself, the Old Testament was completed about 400 B.C., Moses sort of kicked the whole thing off about 1500 B.C., and he's the one that ended up writing the law, if you please, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then a number of prophets continued to follow, and they wrote parts of the New Testament, a number of different authors. And it wound up 5400 BC, something like that, and the, the final books of the New Testament kind of followed on the, the, um, the freedom from captivity in Babylon, Nehemiah, Ezra, Daniel, and some of these books. Now, between 400 BC and uh, uh, 100 A, or, you know, the AD, Anno Domini, which is the year of our Lord, there were a number of people in the nation of Israel that were um, doing their very, very best to become handlers of the Old Testament. They wanted to make sure that Israel never again would fall into idolatry and thus uh, be judged by pagan nations like they were in Babylon and even a little under the Medes and the Persians as well. Now, these, there were, these individuals in Jerusalem or in Israel during that time were, were called the separated ones. Now, we know them as Pharisees in, in the Bible. 
Now, one of the things about Pharisees is that it strikes this uh, chord within us that these are just a bunch of hypocrites and uh, not really credible individuals when, in fact, the vast majority of them were wonderful men. You think of Nicodemus, and he came to Jesus by night and just wanted to inquire about what Jesus was all about. And he prepared the body of Jesus for burial at the time after his crucifixion. And the, the Pharisees, for the most part, were just interested people who wanted to follow the Jewish law that were good, honest, capable men. And again, Nicodemus would be one of them. Uh, there was a group, even amongst the Pharisees, that were the real scholars. And what they did is they took the Old Testament, they codified the Old Testament uh, law of God into specifics, and they called that the Talmud. Now, this lawyer, if you please, was an expert, not so much in Roman civil law, but in Jewish religious law, which means that he was more of a theologian than an attorney. And so he meets Jesus. Now, the second thing that I want to point out to you is that I want you to notice the term test. In other words, this white-collar sophisticate uh, was out to trick this blue-collar carpenter named Jesus to deny and discredit the law. Uh, and the people, in turn, if he did that, would pass this Jesus off as a fraud. And so that was his uh, idea here. So this wasn't an honest dialogue when we talk about the Good Samaritan between Jesus talking about it. It wasn't an honest dialogue. He basically wanted to trick Jesus from his perspective. Uh, and so the third thing that I want to point out is he says, uh, he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the question is uh, framed in such a way that uh, to assume that eternal life can be obtained by some meritorious act here on earth. Uh, what he failed to see is that an inheritance is based on relationship and not achievement. We understand that. Now, the Lord doesn't quibble uh, by pointing out the contradiction implicit in the man's question that you can do something to inherit a gift, nor did Jesus even answer the question. He simply asked the man, asked the theologian, what's written in the law of God? And what the theologian does here is he quotes Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, and these are the words that he told to Jesus. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that was a brilliant answer, and it beautifully summarizes the law. You're to love God with undivided loyalty and then love people for purely for their benefit as an expression of your love for God. And so he said that, and Jesus says, wonderful. Do that, and you're going to inherit eternal life. 
Now, so much for trying to trick Jesus into marginalizing the law. <laughs> he, he wasn't able to do that. And the man returned with a second question. He says, who is my neighbor? And uh, the question, again, represents a serious moral problem. If there's an, a, a neighbor that I must love, is there also a non-neighbor that I really don't need to love? That's kind of the idea behind it, you know? And uh, do I have to love everyone? And where in the world do I draw a line? And there's something about our own humanity that understands a little bit of this. You know, how far, for instance, does our responsibility go in a shrunken world where everybody is our neighbor? And where does compassion fatigue fit into all of this? Uh, you know, and how it, it just uh, reaches to epidemic proportions. What do we do? And what the Lord does here is he doesn't really answer the question so much with a lecture. He, he tells this little story about, about the parable of the Good Samaritan, if you please. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem uh, to Jericho. Now, Jerusalem is on a hill. It's, uh, it's, uh, if you leave Jerusalem and go anywhere, you're going to be going down. And in this case, he was headed east, and uh, he was going down the mountain from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is down at sea level or even below that. And uh, that particular 17-mile road there is a denuded wilderness of nothing but rocks and ravines. Very difficult place, very dangerous place. It was a holdout for criminals and bandits and so forth. So in a day when travel was hazardous to go anywhere in that particular realm, the Jericho Road was especially so. It is, uh, had a nickname called the Way of Blood. Uh, so Jesus continues and he says, you know, this man fell amongst some robbers and they stripped him, they brutalized him, they went away, leaving him to die. And after, as he was laying there, his blood spilling out, uh, a priest uh, comes along that road. Now, priests, for the most part during that time, didn't live in Jerusalem. They lived in surrounding areas, perhaps several miles away. Uh, they would oftentimes just come up to Jerusalem on a rotational basis and spend some time working in the temple, perhaps two weeks, maybe a month or so. And then after that, they would be replaced by other rotational priests and they would go back home. So priests usually didn't live in Jerusalem uh, during that time. But uh, uh, presumably, you know, he had been involved in some sort of temple service and he encounters this guy and his reaction is very instinctive. He simply very quietly crosses the road, goes to the other side and continues on his journey. Now, what we're not so sure exactly what his rationale was, but it's not too difficult to conjecture. The law of God says that contact with a dead body would bring about ceremonial contamination. 
it rendered one unclean for seven days. Now, he had probably been away from his home for a number of weeks serving in the temple, and it was time to go back. And the idea of being halfway down the Jericho Road and then going back for our ceremonial cleansing at the temple in Jerusalem would uh, be just a, you know, a huge uh, spot of time there. And he says, man, I've been gone for a long, long time. I can't get involved in these kinds of things. So I'm going to go ahead and quietly pass on the other side and go down. You know, sometimes we don't feel good. You and I, and I'm talking about, we don't feel good about choosing the other side of the road. But there are times when we've done it, and it uh, very much uncomplicates our life otherwise. Now, the next man who comes along is also a religious figure. He was a Levite, and that was of the religious tribes, so to speak. And although he didn't serve at the altar of the temple or so much, but he still had high responsibilities in the whole religion of Judaism. And his motives weren't uh, given either, whether it was for fear of his safety or fear of defilement or fear of entanglement, if you please. He also passed by on the other side. Now, these uh, two men were not uh, bad men. Uh, they were just busy men. And they're not so much different than you and me in so many ways. You know, people in need can be perceived as interruptions that intrude on my privacy and deflect me from my duty. And I recognize they need help. I sincerely hope they receive help. But I'm a busy man and therefore count me out on this particular occasion. Now there's a third character uh, in the story as well, and this is a man that we call the Good Samaritan. Now a first century Jew, however, would say there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. They were the unclean of Israel. They were the Jews that intermarried. Uh, there were Jews that intermarried with Gentiles and that produced kind of a half-breed race of half-Jew, half-Gentile, and they were called Samaritans. They weren't particularly welcomed at the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem, and they didn't go there. They had their own temple on Mount Gerizim where they would worship themselves. Uh, they were considered... Uh, to be degenerates by the pure Jews. And really, the Samaritans returned the hostility toward the Jewish race, toward the pure Jewish race, in equal measure. So uh, I want you to notice, just think about the actions of this Samaritan that we call good. Familiar parable, but it's freighted with all kinds of implications. First, at the end of verse 33, it says that this Samaritan, when he found the man lying on the Jericho Road, he felt compassion. After that, he bandaged up his wounds. I doubt he had any kind of a first aid kit. He possibly sterilized the wounds with wine and, and uh, uh, oil as he poured it on them. 
Uh, he made bandages probably from his own clothing, just ripping it off and uh, putting it over the wounds of the individual. And then he placed the man on his own donkey and takes him to an inn. Now, again, this is, didn't necessarily happen, but it probably did happen in many ways, but it's a parable. I'm treating it like an incident, and uh, I'll continue to do that. But it, uh, it's, it's something that was common during those particular days. But he took this wounded person uh, on his donkey to, his, to an inn. And this itself would take a great deal of courage. This was Jewish territory. And a Samaritan that was uh, transporting a, Jew, a Jewish victim of a mugging uh, in this Jewish territory would be highly suspect to all kinds of misunderstanding. Uh, one writer says that it would be like an Indian riding into Dodge City with a scalped cowboy over his horse type thing. That's how dangerous it could be during that time. Now, the fourth thing is this. Once at the end, he continued to look after the wounded man. He pays for the wound room and the future care of the victim, and probably at a considerable sum of money. Um, it says that he gave two denarii, which is possible, but uh, in reality, there were going to be future expenses as well. So he probably gave the innkeeper there his, you know, Samaritan Express card or something like that. <laughs> That was kind of a groaner. I'm sorry about that. But anyway. Then uh, Jesus asked the, the crucial question to the man to whom he was talking. He said, who proved to be neighborly? And the man answered, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now the theologian wanted to know who his neighbors were. And Jesus is simply saying, be neighborly to those that you encounter who have need. Now, let me uh, uh, close, conclude a little bit with a rather lengthy conclusion about uh, a couple of thoughts that surface in the story. And the first one is we see a picture of servanthood, which is a, a marvelous picture. You know, the mark of a heart that's been touched by the grace of God, will show compassion to those who are broken. There's an interesting scene at the end of Matthew chapter 25. On the last day, Jesus will show up and there'll be a multitude of people in front of him and they'll all claim to be Christians. And he will say to some, enter into the joy of my Father. Because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was homeless, you sheltered me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the people will ask, well, when did we see you in that condition? And Jesus said, because you treated others in this way, you treated me. Then he'll turn to another group of people who think that they're Christians, and Jesus will say, depart from me into eternal fire. I was hungry, you didn't give me anything to eat. 
I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you never visited me. And they in turn will turn to Jesus and say, when did we see you, Jesus, in this condition? And Jesus will say, because you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Now in James chapter 2, Uh, he makes uh, a statement that's germane to this. He says, if your brother or sister is without food or clothing, and some are, and you say to them, be warmed and be filled, but do not give them what they need, what is the use of that? And the implied answer is, it's of no use whatsoever. Saving faith, saving faith always leads to, to loving concern, period. Now, there are a couple of different kinds of moralists today. You know, uh, there are social moralists. There are personal, you know, whose personal lives, for instance, are somewhat secular, but to uh, their social lives and their concern for other people that are less fortunate uh, they're, they're sacred. They're, they're more, their social lives are, 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 are sacred. Uh, and they're generous toward those who have need. Then there are personal moralists who are very upright and uh, you can, uh, they, they walk in a way that's good before the Lord, but they're indifferent socially. And so we ask the question, which is more important, to be a social moralist or, or a, a personal moral, moralist? And the, the answer is neither one is good by itself. You know, in the presence of Christ, when it takes root in our lives, it creates a, a personal uh, 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 esteem for what we are and what we do, and it creates a, an outward look that we need to take care of our brothers and sisters as well. And during the time that Christianity was really spreading, there was this Roman emperor named Julian uh, who wanted to revive paganism. And so what he did is he ended up sprucing up all of the temples and making them more culturally relevant but nobody would go during that particular era to the temples. Uh, the Apostle Paul and other people were having a tremendous uh, outreach into the people, and they were all going to church. Now, at one point, he was so desperate that he actually wrote to one of the priests, and he said, why does everybody go to church and nobody co- shows up at our temples? And the priest responded, well, it's because... Christians provide not only for their own, but they provide for our own own as well. So if you want to know why Christianity uh, was so powerful during those early days of the church, it wasn't necessarily their worship, it wasn't necessarily the teaching, it wasn't really the fellowship, it was the generosity of the church itself that made a mark on society that couldn't be argued with. And so, you know, the Jews took care of fellow Jews normally, and the the Romans took care of the Romans, the Greeks took care of their fellow Greeks, but the Christians took care of everybody. That was just the mentality that they had. 
And so we see that picture of servanthood. And then the second thing is that we see a picture of our blessed salvation that God bestows upon us. You know, who helps, for instance, the wounded Jewish man on the road that cannot help himself? Well, it was a Samaritan, a sworn enemy. Now, let me make the transfer here. And it is this. When we were naked in our own sinfulness, unable to help ourselves, who helped us? You know, the Son of God is the one that came down and helped us, who at the time were children of the devil. Now, there's some parallels here. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ took his garments of righteousness, tore them up, and gave it to us. Then he took the wine of his blood and poured it out for us. Then he took the oil of the Spirit of God and gave him to us. And then he paid for what we owed and then paid for everything that we would owe in the future. And this almost dead man, you know, you can imagine him waking up the next day in that little inn there on the road to Jericho. And he says, man, I feel pretty good. Soft bed, little mint chocolate there on the pillow, you know, room service for breakfast. He turned to the innkeeper and said, how in the world did I get here? He says, well, a Samaritan helped you and brought you here. My enemy, the guy that I slurred, actually brought me here. Yep, he's the one. Then the wounded man looked at his room and said, you know, uh, I, I can't pay for any of this. And the innkeeper says, you don't have to do it. Uh, your enemy, you know, paid for your future care as well. Uh, so, and then he looked at it, he says, but I can't pay for the food that I'm going to eat. And he says, that's okay, go ahead and eat. He paid for that as well. Well, where is he? Well, he went home. But he's coming back. And you'll see him then face to face. So the real good Samaritan uh, is really the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who acts in grace and compassion, and he does them in perfect obedience to the law, who is the one that gives us what he is his and covers us with his righteousness. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the initial dialogue between the theologian and Jesus centered on loving God totally and loving your neighbor completely, the, the original attorney that he was talking to. Now, if that attorney or theologian here had been honest, he would have said, you know, there's no way I could love like that unless we're crushed by the magnitude of the love of God itself that God requires will never be really humble enough to receive the love that he offers. And when we receive the love that he offers, then we'll be able to give others the love that they in fact need. 
I've got a, a little bit of a benediction for us, um, but I'm going to save that for a moment, another thought or so. So let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for uh, the goodness of the Lord. Uh, perhaps uh, you, something that we uh, can be thankful for in light of what is taking place uh, in our own church here, Father, and for the way you've uh, endowed us, for the way you've led us, uh, Lord, we thank you that um, for what you've done that in many cases allows us to continue to grow and move forward as a body of Christ and as individuals. And we pray, Father, that uh, our own lives would not uh, be a disappointment, but a testimony of who you are and what you've done on our behalf. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.